And, you know, and, and speaking of that, just watching the kids grow, I can't believe how fast this year has gone, right? I mean, we, we've had folks away for the summer like Peter, and now he's back with us. Is anybody else back for the first Sunday or two? Anybody else? I see other hands going up. So we welcome you guys back. Uh, it feels like the kids just started school, but they've already been there long enough to get their first progress report. The, the stores, if, if I went through Walmart like a week ago, and they've already cleared out all of their summer outdoor merchandise, and they've got Christmas stuff up for sale now, right? And, and right here in our own house, your council members, and particularly your finance team, have already set up meeting times to start working on next year's budget and to start talking to you about the principles of good stewardship and the privilege that we have of giving to the work of the Lord. And, you know, it's something that's kind of one of those things that we all really know, but we occasionally need to be reminded of it. I mean, we, we get the idea of giving an offering of money to church, right? I mean, there, there are plates, there are envelopes. You put your money or your check in the envelope and you drop it in the plate. And it represents the, an acknowledgement of God's blessing on our lives. It represents our... Commitment to the ministries that this congregation participates in. And you can see those in your bulletin. It's an act of worship. And it's a way in which, according to the promises of God, that we open up the windows of heaven so he can bless us even further as a body of believers and as individuals. And we pretty much all get that. We get those concepts. But the truth is that all of us, without exception, need some help in the idea of offering not just our stuff, but ourselves to God. And to basically go all in when it comes to, to serving and to worshiping Him. And the Apostle Paul is going to help us out today in that as we go a little deeper into our reading as part of our continued look through his letter to the Romans. So we come today to Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. So hear now the words of the true and living God. Paul writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that sounds like pretty good advice, doesn't it? But you know the trouble is when it comes to the offering, we can't shove ourselves into an envelope, can we? You can't jump into the offering plate as Robbie brings it by. He's pretty strong. He might be able to carry you. I'm not sure. But you can't just jump into the offering plate and say, here you go, I'm offering myself to God today. And even if he could carry you, we'd have an awfully hard time stuffing you through the night deposit at the bank. Now, that may sound funny, but, you know, most people don't come to worship with the idea or with the preparedness to give away our whole selves over to God. You know, we just come with too much baggage. All of us have brought sins here today that need to be confessed before we leave. All of us have brought questions that need to be answered and problems that need to be solved. All of us have brought burdens that need lifted and anxieties that need to be calmed and these fears and frustrations and depression and distractions. All the stuff that we need to get rid of. But you know, the truth is that God is never going to take those things away from us Unless he also takes all the rest of us too, for himself. Because, brothers and sisters, you're never going to find rest and peace and resolution in all the issues of life until you find all of that in him. 
And the way that you do that, the way that you'll find those things is in giving yourself over completely to the worship of Almighty God. You know, I read a, uh, a definition of worship a few years ago that I think really fits here. I want to share it with you. It comes from a, a man named William Temple, and this is what he wrote. He said, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by His holiness, the nourishment of our mind with His truth, the purifying of our imagination by His beauty, the opening of our heart to His love, the surrender of our will to His purpose, and all of this, all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. I love that quote. Because you see, both he and Paul are saying real worship is not merely the offering of corporate prayers together to God when we're here, or, or having an inspiring liturgy or an impressive ritual. It's not in making large donations to the collection plate or, or, or singing hymns of praise or even listening to a sermon. And all of those things are good, and they're, they're all great, but real worship happens when we offer ourselves completely and wholeheartedly to God. Real worship happens as we find ourselves caught up in His splendor and and His holiness through the mercy that He has shown us in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul presents God's mercy as probably his strongest argument in giving ourselves to God. You saw in the reading that he said, I, I beseech you, I, I urge you, by the mercies of God to present your body. And you know that happens when we recognize all that God has done for us through His Son. Through Jesus, the healer, the grace giver, the dead raiser. The sin forgiver. And you know what? I need that. We were talking about this in Sunday school this morning. I, I need that because, brothers and sisters, I'm a sinner and sin has deadly consequences. But while I was still sinning, Jesus Christ died for me. He took my place. And in doing that, he took not only just on himself, but into himself all of my cosmic rebellion and treason against the creator and the ruler of the universe. And he exhausted in himself, on the cross, that wrath and that judgment and that punishment that I deserve so that I'm never going to have to. And you know what? If you're in Christ, he did that for you too. No matter what you've done, no matter how you've lived or where you've come from, that's the beauty of the gospel. Psalm 103 tells us the Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He doesn't punish us for all of our sins. He doesn't deal with us as we deserve. For His unfailing love for those who fear Him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. I love that passage. And you know, really just that thought alone should be motivation enough for us to give our whole selves over to God. Because where would we be without His love? Where would we be without God's presence in our lives? What kind of hope would we have without Him? And you know, it's good for us to take time and go over those kind of things and those thoughts in our minds because if reflecting on God's mercy in our lives doesn't move us, brothers and sisters, we're in big trouble. Because that alone is reason enough to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. But we aren't actually going to crawl up on the table here either. And remember, Paul uses that expression, living sacrifice, set against a backdrop of the Old Testament offerings in the temple. 
And he's saying just as the people of Israel presented their animal sacrifices to the priests, we are to hand ourselves over bodily to God in gratitude and in celebration for all that God has done for us. And in that act of consecration, we give not our dead bodies, but rather we make a living sacrifice. Once we do that, once we make that sacrifice, once we lay our all on the altar, that we stop trying to crawl back off of it again and actively and volitionally offer ourselves to God all of the time. Because being a living sacrifice implies life, doesn't it? It's life. And life is an everyday event. So offering ourselves to God isn't something that can just be contained in this 60-minute worship service. A living sacrifice is continuous. It's active. And it occurs not just in this sanctuary, but in all the rest of the world. It means that worship moves beyond just this limited hour to all the hours of our lives. And it moves away from just the one activity of coming here to all of our activities, our relationships. Every task, every opportunity, every problem, every success, every failure. So that we can be, as I've said before, not just a community of people, that meet once a week for worship, but rather a group of daily worshipers who meet once a week to do it together as a family. We need to be not a community of people who meet once a week to worship, but we need to be a group of daily worshipers who meet once a week to do it together as a family. And that's an important distinction, because it's not just a once a week event. A.W. Tozer wrote, if you will not Worship God seven days a week, you do not worship Him one day a week. Because real worship sees the whole world as God's temple. And every common deed as an act of worship because real worship is offering everyday life to the service of God. So you don't have to just say, I'm going to go to church to worship. You should be able to say, I'm going to the office. Or I'm going to school. Or, or out to the garage or to the garden or to the field to worship God. Because worship affects everything we do and everywhere that we are. But, you know, it's, it never ceases to amaze me that, that people have developed kind of a selective Christianity that allows them to be deeply involved in church activities and then live basically a pagan life the rest of the week, right? day in and day out in their business of life. And what's even sadder is most of those folks never realize the discrepancy. Because you see, to truly know who and how you worship, let me come to work with you to the office. Let me know how you treat your neighbors. Let me know how you earn your money, how you spend it, how you save it. Because true worship is offering everyday life and everywhere we go in gratitude for the new life that we're being transformed into, just like I was talking to the kids about. Paul wrote, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You know, and when we give ourselves to God, it's reflected in how we live in this world without us being trapped into and molded into the likeness of God. We live as a holy people. People who are distinct and unique and different. People who aren't chameleons that take on the likeness of, of all of our surroundings because worshiping people are changed people. It's reflected in their walk. It's reflected in their talk and their personalities because when we give ourselves to God, we are going to then live a life that's not self-centered, 
but Christ-centered, given wholeheartedly to God, that allows the Holy Spirit to release His power from within us so we become a new person, a person whose mind is different because the mind of Christ is in us now, to change us. Because even secular psychologists will tell you that all transformation involves a change of mind. What you think about God matters. What you think about your relationship to Him matters. How you think about the world and your place in it matters. We have to start thinking about what we think about. We have to discern what's useful and what isn't. We've got to be careful about what we read and about what we watch and about what we listen to. Because if you put junk into your mind, you can be absolutely sure that junk is going to come out of your mind. Just like a computer. If you, if you put garbage programs in, you get bad results back out. If you fill it with junk, what else can you expect? But you know, either way, you'll never truly transform without the renewing of your mind. So we need to ask ourselves today, where is our head going? Is it, is it going somewhere good or not so good? And then you may say, well, well, how do I apply this? How, how do I do that? How do I renew my mind? And the answer is right here in this book. Right? The tool by which the work is done is God's holy word. As we memorize scripture and meditate on it and learn it and practice it, you can't just leave it on the coffee table or on the nightstand. That's how our thinking changes. And the more you study God's word, the more time you spend in prayer with it, the more you're transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Because that's the purpose of our renewal. That's the reason for our transformation is to be able to discern the mind of God in His Holy Word. Because as a result of a transformed life will be a commitment to God and the power to receive what God's will is. And He tells us very plainly, because God tells us in His Word, His will is what is good and acceptable and perfect. So God's will is the best place for it. It's the best place any of us can be. It's where we should be. If you're outside God's will, you're not where you belong, and you need to ask ourselves, do I really know what God's will for my life is? Do I know what God's will for this church is? Do I know what God's will for my family is, or for your park, or for your neighborhood? And then ask yourself, what is God telling you to do in His Word? But how are you ever going to discern these things unless you become fully committed to Christ? How are you going to discern God's will without being transformed into the image of Jesus? How are we going to know what God's will is if we're busy chasing after our own desires and what the world says we should do? And you know what the answer is? You can't. We've got to stop conforming to the world and start conforming to Jesus Christ. We've got to decide what's more important, what God wants or what I want. We've got to decide how much we're willing to, to sacrifice for God in our lives and for the church. And the truth is, God wants total commitment and nothing less. And you know, that's not just for a special group of people. That's not just for, for pastors and missionaries and Sunday school teachers. The truth is that all believers, every disciple of Christ is to give 100%. We're all expected to be totally committed. And in fact, there's no such thing as, as just partial. Because if we say we're half committed, that's really saying we're not committed at all. And if we think we are are worshiping apart from a commitment to God, it's false worship at best, and, and maybe no worship altogether. Now you may say, well, Lord, I, I give you everything except maybe this and this. I keep that back for myself. It's not a commitment, is it? 
And you know, if you think about it, really, mediocrity is not attractive to us in any area of life, right? It doesn't have good results in, in sports or in careers or in relationships or in study, but it particularly in our relationship to God. And one commentator said, our lives are designed to be all-consumed. We feel right when we're completely used up for God's sake. And he said, I'm content when my effort has been spent. My words have been spent. My emotions have been spent. My body has been spent. My intellect spent. All for the purpose of someone greater than me. And that someone is the transcendent personal God of the universe. And maybe that's why the the words of Revelation 3, 15 and 16 sting so badly when we hear them. Jesus said, I know all the things you do that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's kind of serious. Isn't it? it didn't sound so good for people who are somewhere in the middle, people who are, are fence sitters. And it doesn't because Jesus sees exactly where we are. You know, if you picture for yourself, let's say, a, a thermometer where the top line represents a red-hot relationship with Jesus, a kind of relationship where his glory is your goal no matter what the cost, and you're consumed by love of the Lord. And, and then you picture the bottom line. It represents a, a stone-dead, ice-cold relationship. In fact, one so icy, you could hardly consider it a relationship at all. And now after you picture that on that thermometer, where would you place yourself in your relationship with God? Way at the top? Or all the way at the bottom? Now, if you're like most people, you probably wouldn't put yourself in either place, but, but maybe somewhere in between. And Jesus Christ is saying to us, so if you're, if you're on fire for me, I can use you. And if you're cold toward the things of the gospel, I can bring you to life with the warmth of my love. But if you're just lukewarm, if you're just tepid, if you're just room temperature, you're lost. You're useless. Because complacency and indifference was and is repulsive to Jesus Christ. And someone might say, well, oh, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. Well, let me ask you very seriously. If Jesus came to your house today visibly and physically and said he wanted to be your house guest for an extended stay, how would your life change? On Sunday mornings, would you look at Jesus over breakfast and say, you know, Lord, we're not going to go to church today because I stayed up really late last night and I, I really just feel like going back to bed. On Wednesday nights, would you come home from work and and look in your master's eyes and say, you know what, I've had a really hard day at work today and I'm too tired to go to Bible study tonight. If Jesus asked if he could audit your checkbook, would he find the things that you paid out honored him or not? At mealtime, would you be embarrassed that nobody had even given a passing thought to take a moment and pause and, and thank him for the meal that he provided? Would you have to hide or pitch out some of your videos or, or reading material before you invited Christ to sit in the living room. If Jesus went to the mall with you or for a walk in your neighborhood, how many people that you run into would you introduce him to? People who you maybe haven't ever shared Christ with up to this point. Can, can you see that, how that starts to pinch? I know it does for me. You know, as I was growing up, my grandparents had a, a plaque hanging in their house that said, Christ is the head of this house. The unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. That'll really make you stop and think, doesn't it? Have you and I really made room in our life for Jesus Christ? 
Do you really consider him to be the listener in your every conversation? Do you enjoy the things that he enjoys? Do you want the things that he wants? Are you ready to put your whole self into the arms of God? Are you ready to commit your all to the one who paid it all for you? And you know, Jesus Christ spoke very openly about the fact that the way of the cross is costly, but let's not ever forget that the true cost was paid. There's a, a, an author and a, and a poet by the name of uh, Alison Luderman who wrote kind of along these lines, and I want to share this briefly with you. She wasn't really writing this in a Christian context, but I think you'll, you'll get the connection here. She writes, I've just learned that strawberries are too delicate to be picked by a machine. The perfectly ripe ones even bruise at too heavy a human touch. She said, then it hit me. And then I realized that every strawberry I had ever eaten, every piece of fruit had been picked by callous human hands. Every piece of toast and jelly represented someone's knees, someone's aching back and hips, someone with a bandana on their wrist to wipe away the sweat. And then, she, then I thought, why had nobody ever told me that before? Why has nobody told me that before? And brothers and sisters, in the same way, those of us who come to this table today need to be told the cost of the meal that we are about to share together. Because every broken piece of bread represents nothing less than the person of Jesus Christ. The Christ who wiped away not sweat but drops of blood in the garden. The person whose back was broken open by the lash of the whip and whose calloused hands were nailed to the cross. And he calls us to come willingly to this table that he provides to to offer and to empty ourselves and to go all in as completely and totally as he did for us on the cross. Amen? Will you pray with me? Father God, it is truly right for us always and, and everywhere to give you our thanks and praises as we come to you, Lord, and ask you just to break down the barriers that divide us, that divide us from you and divide us from each other. We ask, Lord, that you would unite us in your truth and love so that we can confess your name and sit together at one table. We ask that you would help us, Lord, to, to serve you in one common ministry and that we remember the perfect sacrifice of your son for the sins of this world. So come now, Lord, we ask, and continue your transforming work in this place and in this time that eyes may be opened, that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And gracious God, remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine and ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.